Um, people of God, let me ask you, it's been some time since we studied 1 Peter, but do you believe that God puts inside of our hearts the imperishable seed of his word? And if he does that by his Holy Spirit, then that means the word that works inside of us, it never stops working. It's imperishable. It's souls that will live forever. And he says that the seed of his word that he puts in our hearts to birth faith in us and to give us life, it never stops working. And so as we enter into this chapter in 1 Samuel 15, I just want to challenge you to ask yourself whether I have strong belief in that reality or whether I do not, does it change the fact that God's word inside of you is working right now? Whether you feel it or don't feel it, whether you like it or don't like it, if God's word, as, as his spirit applies to our hearts, is a part of our life, it's a part of our church, it's a part of your diet, then are you expecting that it will never stop working in you? To grow you from one degree of glory to another, as Paul writes. To day by day sanctify you. And so I, I come to you eager to preach chapter 15, but also want to give that bigger bird's eye perspective again. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. He gives us his word. It's from him. It's the very word of God for our life and our growth. And I think coming here now to 1 Samuel 15, I, I sense we will, we will experience that. But I don't know what you'll feel. This is one of the most potent texts in all of the book. In fact, I'm going to record it again sometime just so we can have the audio recording for those that are unable to be here this morning. I'll do that this week. We're going to preach 1 Samuel 15 two weeks in a row. Same text. What we're going to do this morning is preach it from the perspective of really who is God in his forgetlessness and in his faithfulness. It's the bedrock of this text. And then next Lord's Day, what we're going to do is we're going to wrestle with this man Saul, the king that people ask for. His demise in this text is, starts to turn towards sort of a gross, gross, um, just absolute defiance against who God is. And he's blind. He doesn't see it. So next week, what we're going to do is it'll be heavy. We're going to talk about what happens if we struggle with fear of man and it goes unchecked. And it just keeps going and going and going. How bad can it get and how fast? That's what we're going to do next week. But we're going to use 1 Samuel 15 as our passage both Sundays. I do want you to know, um, we're in a college campus here. Whenever I've been blessed to give, asked to give a chapel service or a devotion to high school or college athletes, pretty much every time in the last three years, this is the passage I turn to. Every time. And I'll tell you more about why that is next Sunday. Uh, but this is a very applicable text. It's, it's picturesque of man's depravity. We'll talk about that next week, but you'll see it when I read it. And it is potent in its description of God's faithfulness and forgetlessness of what's required if he's our holy God. Okay, so would you stand with me? I'm going to read all of chapter 15. It's long, but it's, uh, it's powerful. So let's hear God's word read together. Would you attend to it with me? Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people in Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Lyon. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. 
For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and he would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, they took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and he tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned, yet please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his own house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel breathed over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God.
Lord, help us. This is heavy. There's a mystery to it. There's a paradoxical reality to it. It's the problem of evil and suffering in this world. But we are thankful that we see you on display when we trust your word as it comes to us in this revelation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I see some million students here. If we are here next week, because heat and air is not working, invite all your friends. We're going to read the same text again, and it'd be really exciting. This is what I talked about with my friends in college all the time. The problem of evil and suffering, and it's not it's no joke, it's no smoke screen. This is a very, very heavy text. This is why I started our intro with 1 Peter 1. The seed of the, of the word of God, it never stops growing and it accomplishes its purpose. So look at verse 1, Samuel said, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. This is Saul's reality. The Lord made you king, you didn't make yourself king. He did so through my word, you're under his word, you have been from the beginning, and you are not to lead your people, it's all about your leading his people. Those are the reality components to Saul's life. And Samuel says, now in light of that reality, listen to the words of the Lord. This is what Saul was supposed to be doing all the days of his life. Understand that with me. We've looked at Deuteronomy 17 many times over recent weeks. It's in the law of God, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as he writes to God's people, he says that the day's going to come when you ask for a king. And when you ask for a king, here's what the king's supposed to do every day. He is supposed to read the law all the days of his life and learn to fear God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them. So this is what Saul's job description is. You're to keep and keep and keep and do and do and do the law that you have heard and heard and heard every day of your life. That's it. It's more important than anything else. Men who were with us last weekend, ladies, I did this with you in the ladies' gathering as well. It reminds me of Jeremiah 23. So let me read parts of that again. Jeremiah the prophet is talking to the people of God there in Babylon because they've sinned and disobeyed, but not in the land of Jerusalem. And they're outside the land and they're in exile. And here's what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you and fill you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it will be well with you. So picture with me, the prophets in Babylon saying to the people, hey, this is this is going to go away. Like God loves us. Like we're good. We're good here. And Jeremiah is giving the word of the Lord saying, don't listen to them. It's going to be a whole generation that's outside the promised land. This is the consequence of sin. Don't listen to them. Here's what Jeremiah says. Who among them have stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Who among them has paid attention and listened? So as we talked about, men, just a reminder. Whatever station of life God's given to you, are you a listening disciple of God? As I do the preaching workshops, there's only one kind of preacher, I think, in the Bible. A listening preacher. Listen first to the words of the Lord and then speak them. That's what Samuel does. So we have listening prophets, listening preachers, listening teachers. We're called to have listening fathers and listening mothers and listening disciples and listening disciples and listening Christians. And above all things, at this time in God's people's history, they were supposed to have a listening king. What was the word he had to listen to this time? Well, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, any of them. 
It's a horrible commandment. Kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So this is the word you need to hear. You need to know that in the Hebrew language, you may have heard this before, the word Shema is to hear, and it's the same word as it means to obey. There's not two words. There's one word. So you need to hear this, and if you hear it, then you do it, because hearing and obeying is the same thing. What a horrendous word of holy vengeance, right? It's not Saul's idea, though. Understand that with me. Especially in this day of human leaders that we have. This does not originate with Saul. It's not his idea. It's not based on something he hears from someone else. It's not what the culturally intuitive Israel think that he should do. There's no conspiracy theory attached to it. I went there. Sorry to say that. Right? There's no personal vendetta for Saul. He's supposed to do what comes from the mouth of the Lord, which means what he's supposed to do is absolutely perfect. And we have to believe that. It should not matter to Saul. He is supposed to hear and he is supposed to obey. One commentator said this, some readers are bothered not with Saul's partial obedience, but many readers are bothered most with the Lord's severe command. Let me be honest, is that how this sits with you? Never mind the disobedience of the king. How could God do this? How about Psalm 145, verse 9? The Lord is good to all his mercies over all that he's made. How can that square with this command? Well, so listen and think through this. God is holy, therefore this word from the Lord is grounded in his mercy and righteousness. And here's what I put in your bulletin. In this single command, we see the glory of the forgetlessness of God. Probably not a word, but I want you to think about it all week long. The glory of the forgetlessness of God. The Lord is forgetless of our affliction due to sin and evil. And he's forgetless of the need for his righteous resolution. He's forgetless. He'll never forget it. And that's one of the things on display here. See, something had happened in Israel's past. You may be aware of it. Deuteronomy tells us about it and says God never forgot. Deuteronomy 25 verse 17 says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you when you were faint and you were weary? He cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So here's what had happened. As the Israelites were wandering the wilderness, leaving, they just crossed the Red Sea, and Amalek waited, and they pounced upon the Israelites, and they, they cut off the weakest of the Israelites in the Exodus that were lagging behind the women, the children, the weakest, they couldn't keep up with the rest of the people who were running from the Egyptians. And Amalek was there to just destroy them ruthlessly. We're, we have more about this in Exodus 17. You might remember there was a battle that happened as a result of it. Joshua was down in the valley fighting. And do you remember the scene where Moses is up on the mountain? And as long as his hands are up, the Israelites are defeating the Amalekites. That's, that's this same group of people. And whenever Moses held up his hand and his staff... Israel prevailed. If his hands got weak and he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and Hur came and they put a stone under Moses and they held his hands up all day long. So Israel defeated the Amalekites. And listen to this, Exodus 17, verse 13. After Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven, said God. This is why it's in the law in Deuteronomy 25, 19. When the Lord has given you rest from all your enemies and you're finally in the land that God has given you, you shall blot out Amalek from under heaven. 
And then this is Deuteronomy 25, 19. You shall not forget. See, here's the challenge. God never forgets. We forget. If Saul's reading the Bible, the law of God, every day of his life like he should, he shouldn't forget. God never forgets. Thanks be to God who doesn't forget how his people have been trampled by his enemy and have been hated and have experienced suffering. So Isaiah, all the Old Testament, but all the Bible, Isaiah 35, verse 4, the Lord your God will come with vengeance. Vengeance isn't yours. The Lord your God will come with vengeance and recompense, with perfect, holy remembrance of what's required. The command here is to devote to destruction. That's a, in Hebrew, it's a technical term. It's called the ban. Here's what is ultimately being said. God is going to, in his holiness, wipe out an enemy. Full consequences. It's horrible. But I want to ask you not to use our experience with religious wars as a foil of understanding what the Bible is saying here. I want you you to try not to caricature this. This is not genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. Our world that wants us to forget that God's made all in Adam beautifully. This is not any sort of ethnic destruction. This is God's justice on evil. That's what the word is telling us. And it's not just any God who's executing justice on evil. What is God's title in verse 2? He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. And he's patient and he gives people time for repentance. But if they will not, he is the Lord of holy vengeance. And so that's the command. Verse 4, Saul just decides to carry it out. He gathers troops, 200 plus thousand. They go to the city of Amalek and he sees the Kenites there. This is actually kind of an interesting moment. He says to the Kenites, hey, my, my beef is not with you. You need to, we don't want collateral damage here. You need to go. You see a little bit of mercy in Saul here. Verse 7, after the Kenites go away, Saul defeats the Amalekites. Verse 8, he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the animals and all that was good and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Understand what that's saying. Saul goes above the line of God's word here and he says, I decide. I decide what's worthy and what's not worthy. I decide what's good and bad. And I'll blame the people if I need to blame them when my definition doesn't seem to be muscular, but I decide. And I've been just terrified this week preparing to preach this and think through the weight of God's holiness. How often do I think I can decide? I get to decide. I decide what's worthy and not worthy here. I decide what's good and bad. And do we not live in a culture where we are so familiar and sadly among many who have at one point in time said God's word is their authority, but then come along and say, well, wait a second. I decide what is beautiful with regard to sexuality. I decide what is beautiful with regard to relationships. I decide what is the better way of conflict resolution. I decide what is good and not good. I decide what is love and not love. I decide what is, I was going to say biology and not biology, but I could go on and on. You understand the point. No, we don't know what is worthy and not worthy. No, we don't have eternally good memories of what has 
than holy and unholy in this world. No, we are finite in our perspective. And this command from God is confronting that in man. So verse 10, when Saul disobeys, God comes to Samuel and says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned from me. He's not performed my commandments. See, that's what disobedience is. Not doing God's commandment is turning from God. And we have it right here. And this just crushed Samuel. So we read that he pulled an all-nighter. He boiled with distress. I want, I want you to think of me the last time as you stayed up late. I've had, I've had pastoral nights where I knew that what I needed to do the next morning was just too much to bear. I just distressed. Sits with you. Paul calls it anxiety for the churches. Maybe for me it's just fear of conflict. I don't know. But who's Samuel angry with? Is he angry with the Lord? Is he angry with Saul? Is he angry at the situation? Who's he crying out for? Is he crying out for Saul because he wants the king to repent? Is he crying out for the people because he thinks they need to be protected? Is he crying out for himself because he needs endurance and it's just too much to bear? It's just super sad because he wakes up the next morning and he's going to confront Saul. And we're going to look at all of that next week. All of the sick realities of that. Really, verse 13 to 23. Today, I just want you to grapple with me about the holiness of God. The Amalekites experience holy destruction by God's design. Agag at the end is not spared. I mean, this story is amazing. Can you not picture with me the, the smirk on Agag's face at the end of this chapter? He's cheerful and he says, death has passed me, it's missed me. What are you going to do now to me? No, death has not missed you. The wages of sin is death. Wipe that smirk off your face. You're an evil man. And you've continued to harm the people of God and reject the glory of the king. And since the king wouldn't obey, you have the preacher destroy him. What's added to this text is clearly and obviously Saul is also rejected. You've got the Amalekites destroyed, you've got Agag hacked to pieces, and then you have Saul fully rejected. Again, let me just give you a hint of where this is going. Saul wouldn't obey, wait. But you know that when we get to chapter 22, when the priests of Nob harbor David, who's running from Saul, and Saul goes to Nob and he sees these priests, he says, you have turned against me. You're helping David. You're against me. Like He's like, he's going crazy. 85 priests of Nob, they are going to be hacked to pieces with their children and their wives and all their animals. Saul is not unwilling to do this. When he finally does it, he's going to do it to the people of God. He's a grossly, grossly sinning, evil man in the end. So he's rejected. So here's the weight of this passage, and I don't mind going there with you. wouldn't choose to preach this at a chapel service for a college probably, but the Lord is forgetless of sin and evil in this world. Do you believe that? The Holy Creator is absolutely forgetless of what sin requires. The reason in our sermon study time we said we better split this text up is because I'd rather talk about Saul's destruction because I can relate to that and then I can cry out for mercy. I don't want to talk about this. But they go hand in hand. Because God is not a man. You read that in this text, don't you? He is righteous. He does not change his mind, verse 29. He's not fickle 
to fluidly adapt to whatever holiness is described to be by any sort of changing cultural norm. Our God is holy, and his holiness demands that he act on the sin that he sees and that he cannot forget. And he does not ever repent or change his mind as to what sin deserves, ever. But if you're studying the passage here with me, you see in verse 35, wait a minute. The Lord does say he regretted making Saul as king. Isn't that a change of mind? So now we have a, a dilemma here. Let me wrestle with this with you. God's word is never contradictory. And I think what the text is saying here is our God, the creator, is firm, but he also feels. That's what's being said in the text. So in verse 11 and verse 35, when it says that God had regret, the word of God is showing us the feeling of God. We have no right to ascribe God feeling, but the word is his self-revelation. And we're being told that he had regret. It's the same Hebrew word as in Genesis chapter 6. Listen to this, verse 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the hearts of man was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Do you hear the parallelism in Hebrew? The Lord regretted that he made man, and it grieved him to his heart. So what regret is here is the grief in the heart of God for what sin requires and what sin is. So 1 Samuel 15 is taking us this morning right into the holy grief of our God. I would never dare stand before you and tell you that I know what God is feeling about you. But I think when God shows us here his grief in this situation, we have to understand the heart of the God that we worship. Now, how is it that God grieves something that he's sovereign over and knew was going to happen anyway? Problem of evil, right? Problem of suffering. How does he grieve what he knows is going to happen anyway? What can it mean? Well, Ready for this? I don't know. But I do know that there's a consistent picture of that in the scriptures. Think with me of Jesus, God in the flesh. John chapter 11. His disciples learned that Lazarus is sick, and they said, we better go help Lazarus. And he says, no, let's stay here no longer. Finally, Jesus says, let's go. Remember, Thomas says, oh, let's go die with you, because if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. He gets there. Both Mary and Martha meet him, and they say, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. Why did you wait? You weren't here. You were supposed to. And Jesus saw Mary weeping. He saw the Jews weeping with her. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then we read, Jesus wept. What was there to weep over if he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and show more glory than any human had ever seen? If not, he's grieving because sin hurts the heart of God. Your sin does. My sin does. And I'm not saying Lazarus died because he sinned, but the consequence of sin in a world not working rightly grieves the Creator. And I wish this room was full so that I could convey that we have to believe that as Christians. Do you believe that? Honestly, do you believe that the Lord is forgetless of any affliction you have suffered in a world of sin. And vengeance will be his to pay for those who sinned against his people and against his glory. He is forgetless and it grieves him and he never ever forgets the need for his resolution of righteousness. 
This is an amazing passage. That's who God is. And yet Saul thought he knew better. Saul thought he knew what was worth keeping and what was worth discarding. So many in our world, especially it saddens me, most people who once believed that God's authority was revealed in his word, and it was true, but the, the shifting culture around us causes us to think, well, no, actually, I can think of a better definition of, 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 of God's love. I can think of a better definition of mercy. I can think of a God who's much nicer than this text allows us to think of him as being. But we do that, and the next thing we know, we don't even cry out to a God for mercy because we've become idolaters of a God in our own minds. Think with me of Hannah's prayer in chapter 1. Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Don't forget my grief. You all realize that's the way the whole book started? Is a servant of God saying, please don't forget how much pain I'm in? Please don't forget what this world has taken from me. Please don't forget what Penina does when she mocks me. Please don't forget the whole book now comes to this critical moment and we see God never forgets. But if God never forgets the consequence and the cost of sin, the other thing we have to then really believe is God never forgets his own holiness. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13 he does not ever deny himself. So the passage goes from the glory of the forgetlessness of God to the glory of the faithfulness of God and this is where we'll kind of land this morning. Look in verse 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you, Saul, Samuel says, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. You ever lost a starting position on a team and the coach just says it like it is? You want to know why you're not starting? Like that guy's just better than you are. Straight up. This is a painful thing for Saul to hear as the the leader, isn't it? The Lord's going to give it to someone who's better than you. It's no longer you. We're going to meet that better neighbor in chapter 16. But understand, I think the word neighbor stands out very weird to us. What a weird statement. There's a neighbor of yours who's going to be better than you, and that's the next king. I think that word should stand out to us who know the New Testament. We, we think of a friend of sinners, Jesus, who hung out with sinners in the neighborhood. <laughs> we could even use John 1 and say, didn't Jesus come and neighborhood himself among us as a man? He neighborhooded himself among sinners. So we know the, the neighbor being referenced here is David, but we're going to have a promise given to David that God's steadfast love is going to put a seed in his family line such that righteous reigning and loving and care for God's people is going to come from David and it would last forever. And in Psalm 89, when we find out that actually that promise goes way past David and points to God's forever king, what is one thing God says about his forever king? He says... Verse 35 of Psalm 89, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I will not be false to my faithfulness. I will never change my mind. I will never regret the line of rescue that's going to come through my servant David. And so we should think of Jesus, the better king, when we read this. The better neighbor king, he's literally better than any other that came before him. I want you just to think with me for a second after seeing how evil Saul is. Think with me how much better Jesus is than anyone we've ever known in our, our own hearts reveal the testimony of it. He's better in his obedience. He was righteous. He never sinned. He's better in his worship of the Father from childhood. He said to his parents, you should have known I'd be in the Father's house. He's better in his authority and teaching. And when he showed up on the scene, they couldn't believe he had so much authority. He's better in his power to be a healer. He, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
He's better in his defense against the prince of this world and the enemy than he has been from the very moment he came in his incarnation. He's better in his love and affection. I've been reading in the Gospel of Luke. You know, in Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain, she'd already lost her husband, then she loses her son, and the funeral procession is coming toward Jesus, and he walks into the scene. When he saw her, he had compassion on her. He's just better. He sees affliction and he grieves it. He's better at everything. His countenance was better. His love of children was better. His treatment of women was better. His confronting the prideful religious was better. His welcoming the weak was better. His explaining things was better. His serving was better. He's the better neighbor king. And if we're really explicit, we're going to wrap up the passage and see how this text points to Christ. What did Jesus do as the great neighbor king? But the very things that Saul failed to finish that's the key thing. He failed to finish it. Jesus says, I will finish it. And I think we should be thinking of the words on his cross. It is finished. I did 100% accomplish what the Father sent me to accomplish. There's no standing before the Father saying, I, I did what you asked me to do, but not doing it. No, he fully did it. Now, the challenge for us is he, he did it already for us to cry out for mercy. He bore the full cost of, of sin. The holy wrath of God was put on him so it wouldn't be put on us. But we still live in an age and a time where his cross is directly connected to his resurrection, is connected to his ascension, is connected to his return. It's all one event called the gospel. And when the gospel is brought to completion, he will return. Are you ready for this? What Jesus will do to his enemies is described in the New Testament. He's the friend of sinners, but he is the vengeful, wrath-filled coming king who will right all wrongs and destroy the enemies of God. And we cannot erase that from the Bible. We don't talk about that much, but we cannot erase that from the Scripture. 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus Christ is to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes to finish it, what is he doing but fulfilling the promise given at the beginning? Remember Genesis 3.15? The son, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent. And Jesus is going to be the one that comes to do it. Acts 17, Paul's preaching and he says the day is already fixed when he's going to come as judge. And I just don't want to read it. It's too long. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, read verse 5 to 10 this week. And you see the vengeance that Jesus will bring on those who do not obey the gospel of God. Jesus is the better Saul. He will finish it. Now what do we do with this? <laughs> Except feel like, gosh, the world's going to hate us if we believe this. You know what we do with this? We realize it's supposed to be the bedrock of our prayers. Do you know that if you look at the Bible, God being merciful to sinners who deserve mercy, but bringing justice on the evil who would reject him, is the bedrock of the prayers of the people of God. So I was reading in Psalm 12 this week, and the psalmist says, Oh Lord, would you save your people? Because we need you to cut off the lips of the lying people around us. This world is full of vile sinners. Is anybody godly anymore? That's Psalm 12. So the psalmist in his prayer is saying, Lord, would you be our refuge? Would you have to cut off the wicked? Because you're the only one that would do it rightly. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God. I saw the martyrs who died. And I saw the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice. Ready? The martyrs are crying out with a loud voice. Sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and you will avenge the blood of those who dwell on earth. In Revelation, the prayer of those waiting for the completion of all things, they're saying, when are you going to avenge the blood of those who lost their life because they believed in the gospel? Well, if God's going to do that, then we have to cry out for mercy, don't we? Because is any of us holy? Is any of us worthy, according to God's definition, to be spared? No. So last comment here. If the gospel is finished, Jesus will finish what he's commanded to do. You know what else the gospel is? For those that have received mercy from God, it is forgotten. Our sin is forgotten. The, for, the God who's forgetless didn't forget your sin and my sin when he put our sin on Jesus. So it's been remembered, but on the cross. And what is the consistent message to sinners who cry out for mercy? Jeremiah chapter 31, I will remember their sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he separate our unholiness from his holy. He didn't forget it in the sense of it slips his mind. He remembered every one of your and my sins, past, present, and future, but he spent all of the wrath that's due it on his son already, and therefore from that point forward, by grace to faith alone, it's a gift. He's forgetless of your and my sin. That's the gospel. I hope you believe it. And you know what it means, a small application? You don't have to self-justify. You certainly don't have to have vengeance when someone sins against you. Book of Romans, chapter 12, Paul says, As for you, be at peace with everyone. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. He doesn't forget anything. So we forgive and we forgive and we forgive and we learn. You trust him, not because we trust sinners in the world. This is a probably one of the heaviest chapters in the whole Old Testament. And I ask you, I plead with you to believe that God's put his seed in your heart. And us thinking about his forgetlessness and what our sins do needs to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And if it does, then we cry out for mercy. And when we do, we realize because of Jesus' love. Our sins have been forgotten. Rest in that, we pray. Father, would you receive us now as we repent of our sins and believe in this message? Thank you for this time we've been able to have in this place, warm, safe, and dry. But would we believe you to be who you are? In Christ's name, I pray.